You are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray that this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, it should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement, the pastor God has put over your life, or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. During today's sermon, we'll be looking at Exodus 16 and 17, but we'll be understanding this passage through the lens of 1 Corinthians 10. So please follow along as I read 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example that they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Um, Father, I thank you for your word. Um, I thank you that it's been preserved for us um, to learn from, and I thank you that through it um, you reveal yourself and you reveal your character. Father, I pray that you would be with Rob today um, as he preaches from it. Um, Give him wisdom. Um, Lord, be with his words, and I pray that you would give us all receptive hearts, hearts that are um, softened to truth, Lord, um, hearts that would um, search ourselves, Father, um, I pray that today um, the dead hearts would come to life, Father, through the preaching of your word. I ask and pray all of this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome to Renaissance Church. Um, If you didn't catch me at the beginning of this online broadcast, my name is Rob, and I'm one of the elders here. Um, We're at one of our house-to-house gatherings, and so if you If you happen to uh, see me look away from the camera, uh, it's because I'm talking to some folks who are social distancing in front of me, wearing masks, all all that good stuff. Um, And some of you might be, uh, have been gathering with us for a while, and you heard uh, Abby, one of our members, just read from 1 Corinthians 10, and you're like, hold the phone. I, I thought we were going through the book of Exodus. I thought you were preaching through the entire book of Exodus. And I would say you thought right. We are. And what, what I, I, hopefully you have been seeing throughout this entire narrative is how the New Testament has shaped the way that we view the Old Testament. 
You see, what has been concealed about Jesus, the Messiah, in the Old Testament has been revealed in the New Testament in the person and work of Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 10, the passage that you just heard read will be one of the lenses that we'll be viewing Exodus 16 and 17, and in the coming weeks, we'll be viewing this entire wilderness wanderings that Paul talks about in those 13 verses of chapter 10. We'll be viewing uh, those wanderings through through the lens of 1 Corinthians 10. Um, and if you have your Bibles with you, uh, it will also be viewing it through John 6 and Hebrews 3 today. But the main passage we're looking at today is Exodus chapter 16 and chapter 17. And if you have our house-to-house worship guides, um, that will be the, the passage that is listed out there. And you can follow along as I call out verse numbers to pay attention to in those two chapters. Now, now, Paul, if we go back to that passage that Abby just read, he's telling the church in Corinth, and by us, by extension, us, Renaissance Church, to view what is occurring in Israel's wilderness wanderings as examples for our own instruction. Now, so, some of you kiddos that are watching in right now, how, how many times have you probably heard your parents say, hey, don't do what I do? do what I say. Or maybe some of you uh, remember that saying from your parents, like I remember it from my dad. He was always saying on repeat, do what I say, not as I do. See, on the one hand, my, my dad wanted me to hear the wisdom of his words. And on the other hand, he wanted me to see his example through failure to see his example through the mistakes that he made so I would not make similar mistakes in my own life. See, learning from others' successes is, is a great tutor. But oftentimes, learning from their failures can sometimes be a better teacher. And this is what the Apostle Paul is revealing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That Israel's sin of grumbling was written down for our instruction. But even more, that God's great grace consistently out- outweighed their grumbling. You see, what we'll, we'll find here in this passage of Exodus chapter 16 through 17 is where the Israelites could find first, first point, satisfaction for hunger and thirst. And second point, where they can find safety from the battle and the enemy. And the big life-changing truth that, that I want you to enjoy, that I want to enjoy today, is that God's grace is always greater than our grumbling. I want you to hear this. Grace is always greater than grumbling. I pray that we're able to enjoy that truth as as we walk through these two chapters in the book of Exodus. So first point, the satisfaction for hunger and thirst. So Israel just made it out of Egypt, right? They're now traveling to Mount Sinai where God first met Moses in a burning bush. You see, they're traveling through the wilderness of sin. That's not what we understand sin as. That's uh, sin. That's where they get the name Sinai from. 
And but on their way, they begin to complain that they're hungry. And they begin to blame Moses, and they even regret that God freed them from slavery. They're not just in hunger, they're hangry. Y'all been there before? You're so hungry that you become angry. Look what they write. Moses writes about this in verse 3 of chapter 16. Would that we had, this is the Israelites speaking, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Oh, when we sat by those meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Do you see what a grumbling heart does there? When you don't enjoy the present, grumbling rewrites false narratives of the past. It views past slavery as pleasant and present sanctification as painful. Grumbling also makes false prophecies about the future. Did you notice that? They say we will certainly die by hunger. You know who this sounds like? Me. And I don't like my present predicaments. I rewrite the narrative. I wonder if it sounds like you. But despite their complaints against and about Moses, no matter how great their grumbling, God's grace is greater. And if you look at verse 4, he then sends bread, which they call manna from heaven in the morning and quail from heaven in the evening. Now, these, these folks, they're allowed to gather as much as they need for their family, but they were not to keep any of it overnight, for it would, it would go bad. See, God wanted them to trust that he would provide what they needed for each day. And there was one exception to this rule. In verse 5, we see that the people were to rest from all their work, even gathering food, on the seventh day. And this day is the Sabbath. It's, it's, the, it's a weekly reminder that they and we can rest from our work because God is our provider. And so on the day before the Sabbath, what do they get to do? They get to take a double provision, twice as much as they need, and keep it for the next day, the Saturday, the Sabbath. But they hoarded food from one day to the next. They didn't listen to the voice of God, and they even went out on the Sabbath to keep working. And, and we see that in verse 27. They didn't trust God to provide for their needs. And so what example does Paul want us to see? He says this is for our example, for our instruction. I think we first have to understand that grumbling is never solely and primarily against others, it's primarily against God. Where do we see that? In, in verse 8 of chapter 16. Moses writes, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the fool, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us. He's talking about he and Aaron. Your grumbling is against the Lord. Moses says all complaining is directed primarily at the Lord. I mean, how many times have we said, if things can just get back to 
fill in the blank. Or if I only had what I want right now. These phrases are indicators of a soul that think that the past is far better than what God provides for you in the present. And a grumbling and complaining heart believes that what God has provided for you is not enough. They still kept food till the next day, even though God told them that he would provide for them on the next day. They still went out on the day of rest because they felt like they had to work for more provision. That's what we say. We say, well, we need to work for more. See, when we don't think that God will satisfy not just our physical needs, but our spiritual needs, we'll begin trusting in our ability to provide for that hunger and thirst and not in God's ability to provide for that hunger and thirst. But here's the reality. Whether you're joining us as a skeptic today or as a Christian or you're just wanting to learn about who this Jesus is, I mean, how many times have you gotten what you, you wanted? And it still wasn't enough. It still didn't satisfy. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, writes this. He says, I find myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy. The only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. The created was never meant to sustain your spiritual hunger and thirst. The creator, the creator is supposed to satisfy that hunger and thirst. And a grumbling heart, it doesn't just hoard. A grumbling heart just doesn't work for more. A grumbling heart is also a demanding heart. Look in chapter 17, verse 2. Therefore the people, that's the Israelites, quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. They're demanding. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Israel is reversing the script. Only God is allowed to test. And here they are testing God. They want life on their own terms. Rather than trusting God's ways and trusting God's wisdom, They're saying, my way now. I'll force God's hand. I trust my plan, not his plan. But even as Israel grumbles, God's grace is greater. He tells Moses not to strike the Israelites, but to strike a rock to provide them with what they want, water. And then we see the root cause for all of their complaining, all of their gripes and moaning. Verse 7 of 17. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? What a grumbling heart reveals is that we don't trust that God is with us. This has been the major question throughout the book of Exodus. Where is God? Who is this God? He was with us at the Red Sea, but but will he abandon me now? 
He was with us at the cross of Christ and in the empty tomb, but is he with me right now? How quickly they forget. How quickly I forget. I mean, God was with them the entire time. In the cloud by by day and in the fire by night. And even, I wonder if you notice in verse 10, he revealed his full glory to them. Full glory was revealed. He made himself known to them, not just in his glory, but in his voice in verse 10. Don't don't you see, God just doesn't tolerate their grumbling by providing for their needs. He wants to be present with them. God just doesn't tolerate you. Tolerance is a weak form of love. God wants to be present with us. Not just when we're not grumbling, even when we complain. And this is, isn't this what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4? That it was Christ that was the rock that followed them the entire way through the 40 years of wanderings. Jesus was present with them the entire time. Jesus satisfied not just their physical thirst, but Paul says this is their spiritual water. This is the water that does not run dry. Where did Paul learn this from? Well, from Jesus in John chapter 4, where he says, I provide living waters that man will never thirst again. And then later in John chapter 6, if you want to flip there right now, Jesus is not just saying, I am the true and living water. I am the true bread. Jesus just got done finishing a feeding thousands with bread from a little boy's lunch. And the Pharisees in John 6, they uh, approach Jesus, these religious Jewish leaders, and they demand a sign like their fathers with the manna in the wilderness. And Jesus responds to them, I am. Now, those two words are an offense to them because he's declaring that I am the great I am. And then he says, I am this bread of life that has come down from heaven. See, the truest bread from heaven, Jesus says, is my body. And this is the body that he gave for us on the cross. The manna in the wilderness for the Israelites invited them to taste, touch, smell, and see that the Lord is good. That his grace is abundant and free. That manna was unearned and undeserved. They didn't have to do anything for it. And the Israelites, even though they grumbled, they got this manna for 40 straight years. And they still died. But Jesus says anyone who eats of his flesh, the true bread, will never die. And that's because Jesus has died on the cross so that we might partake in his eternal life. And so the question is, how do we eat Jesus? (laughs) How do we eat him? Jesus says, you believe in me. And you believe on him who has sent me from heaven. And when you believe in him, you will never go spiritually hungry. When you believe in him, you'll never go spiritually thirsty. And this truth leads you to take a truer Sabbath rest, not just one day a week, but every day of the week, because Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath. See, just as the Israelites never had a scarcity of manna, quail, or water, we don't have a scarcity of salvation. It's provided in full by Christ Jesus. It's abundant. It's free. We don't have to work for it. You can't earn it. And we definitely don't deserve it. You don't need to hoard up your good works like the Israelites hoarded up that bread each and every day. You don't need to work extra days 
like they did on their day of rest, to prove to yourself and to work off your extra grumbling that you've been complaining a little bit extra during this season. No, your grumbling will never exhaust God's grace for you in Christ Jesus. Your complaining will never exhaust God's commitment to be ever present with you in Christ Jesus. God's grace is greater than your grumbling. He's satisfied with you. Why can we be satisfied with Christ? Because God was first satisfied with uh, us because of Christ. Jesus satisfies our true hunger and our true thirst. But he'll also provide us safety from the battle and the enemy. But let's first look at how God provides safety from the battle and the enemy for the Israelites in the second half of chapter 17. That's the second point. Safety from the battle and the enemy. Now, now Amalek right here, verse 8, they, they were this nomadic people group. They were always traveling, and they were experts in raiding and plundering and pillaging the nations. And they, they, they're like the enemy, not like, they are the enemy that, that literally was able to follow you around and could wage war at any given moment. And in Israelites' past battles, God told them to be still, to be silent, and let God fight. But in this battle, in this time, they're enlisted to be used by God. Do you see that in verse 9? And so as long as Moses is up on the mountain holding his arms wide with staff in hand in verses 11 through 13, as long as his arms were held high, the Israelites would be advancing the battle. But as soon as his arms fell, because he grew tired, the Israelites would start to lose. Now, remember, the staff that he's holding in one of his hands has represented the power and the presence of God. That's what that staff represents. Before Pharaoh, before the Red Sea, and even when that staff just struck the water, or the rock for water, it's showing us that Israel cannot win this battle alone. And that even Moses can't lead on his own. He needs some bros on either side to help him hold up his arms. Now, some might say this is a leadership lesson and that leaders shouldn't lead alone. Maybe. Maybe. I think we'll get to more of that in chapter 18 uh, next week. But I think primarily here what we're, what we're seeing is that this is God's battle. Remember what that staff represents? I, I just said, I wonder if you remember it. It's God starts with a P, his power and presence. You got it. I know you all answered it perfectly. It's the power and presence of a gracious God, which is why Moses built an altar. Look at that. Chapter 17, verse 15. Moses built an altar, altar and called the name of it, not Moses is my banner, not Joshua, who's leading the charge in the field, is my banner. The Lord is my banner. This is a victory banner that nations would wave at the end of a war. It's declaring both victory and possession. The Lord 
is the victorious one. The Lord is saying, these people, these grumbling people are my possession. I'll take ownership of them. They are mine and I am theirs. And in the same way, church, we have a battle to fight. We have an enemy to defeat. And it's not what you think it is. The battle's not out there. It's right here. It's my heart. It's your heart. And in case you think I'm over-spiritualizing this, don't trust my words. Trust the author of the Hebrews who says this of their hearts and our hearts. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 17 through 13. Today, if you hear his voice, oh, I'm praying that I can hear his voice. Please pray that you can hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. And I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The battle we are called to fight is with the enemy that is the deceitfulness of sin that is lodged in every human heart. And remember, this letter to the Hebrews is not written to non-believers. It's written to Jewish Christians. And when he's using that hard heart language, he's saying the same thing that happened to the enemy Pharaoh, whose lead heart drowned him in the sea, is the same thing that happened to several thousand of the Israelites after they were free. And our complaining and our grumbling hearts can lead us to do the same. And even after Jesus said, I am the bread of life in John chapter 6, do you know how the Jewish leaders responded to him? Look at verse 41 in John chapter 6. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. These Jews were perpetuating the wilderness pattern of unbelief in the face of miraculous signs done by Jesus. And I just wonder, are we, as God's chosen people, bought by the blood of Jesus, perpetuating the wilderness patterns of unbelief in the face of Jesus? What you complain about, what I complain about, reveals my distrust of what God has provided us with. You know what God has provided you with? Tests. Tests to see if we trust his words, that he will provide for us. Give us this day our daily bread, we pray. 
Do we trust his words, his provision? Do we trust his presence in every moment? This is our call to be enlisted into the fight, not for our salvation, but the fight for our sanctification, that our hearts do not become hardened. Let me share a little story about um, me and a monthly recurrence with my internet provider's customer service department. They messed up. They messed up real bad. They messed up 10 plus times worth of messing up. They messed with my bill. They messed with my money. And now they're wasting my time. And I let them know it. Y'all, this is not like five years ago. This is like 10 days ago. And I let them have it. They heard all of my complaints. They heard all of my grumbling. And as they started resolving all my complaints, in a nice calm voice, the representative asked me, so what do you do for a living? I was exposed. I mean, do I tell them that I'm a pastor? And so I did. I told them, actually, I'm a pastor here in Pittsburgh. And I wish that I could tell you by the end of the conversation, I asked for their forgiveness. I didn't. You want to know why? Because I felt justified in my complaints. They cost me all this time and all this money. Therefore, my grumbling is warranted. That is the deceitfulness of sin. That is the battle. And that is the enemy that must be defeated. See, complaining and grumbling is not just something we do. It's something that most of us have become. America's greatest pastime is not baseball, y'all. This nation was founded on complaints about a king. Complaining is America's favorite pastime. Griping, moaning is evidence of a heart that does not trust God. Grumbling is an offense against God. See, what you're, complain, what you're prone to complain about out there is really a complaint to there, to God. But I want you to see something. That when we become aware that it's an offense against God, that's actually God's first act of grace. It's his first act of grace to give us an awareness that when we say, I could have done this better, I could have planned this better, I could have provided for me in a better way, I could have given me better gifts. Even when we're aware of that, that is a gift. That's what grace is. It's a free gift. Why is it a gift? It's because as soon as we come to understand that it's offense against God, we then have the opportunity for a second amount of grace. His forgiveness. He's quick and ready to forgive us and pour out a double provision of grace. 
And what is this double provision of grace? What's the same double provision that the Israelites received on the Friday before their Sabbath on the Saturday? And he's saying, come and take your fool. Take, you'll be full. You'll be satisfied with this grace. And that first act of grace is his forgiveness. He forgives you. Not because of the work you have done, but because of the work that Jesus has done. I mean, our grumbling is like the Amalekites who follow people around. Our grumbling follows us around everywhere. But do you know what God did with those Amalekites? He blotted their memory out from under heaven. And in Christ Jesus, Christ comes to fight the battle on our behalf. He comes without complaining. He comes without grumbling, without griping and moaning. He comes with joy. He comes with gratefulness. He took that cross with joy and he took on our sin of complaints so they can be buried in the grave and be blotted out from the memory of heaven. See, on that cross, Christ fought the battle with his arms spread. And it wasn't just nails that held his arms open wide. He willingly went there. It was his love. It was his grace. It was his mercy for you that held his arms open wide so that he, he can bear the punishment, the wrath of, of God. You see, why, why can God be satisfied with us in Christ Jesus? Well, it's because Jesus satisfied the wrath of God in its full so that we can be safe hidden within the rock, the cleft of the rock, so that Jesus can be our refuge, Jesus can be our safety, so that we will not get the punishment that we deserve for offending God with our griping and moaning and grumbling and complaints. See, Jesus did not come to destroy the enemy. He's come to transform the enemy. He takes out our heart of stone and transforms it into a heart of flesh so that we can get that second provision. You know what that second provision is? It's the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And the reason why we are able to have this spirit within us is because Jesus gave up his spirit on the cross. Into your hands, he says, I commit my spirit. And this spirit of the living God is, is God's power and his presence. It's greater than any staff that Moses has ever held. It's the same spirit that was present with the Israelites in a cloud by day and fire by night. It's the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead on the third day is now at work in my body, your body, when you repent of your sin and put your faith in what Jesus has done for you in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. And if you're listening right now and you are seeing for the first time that your greatest battle is not out there, but it's in here. I want to invite you right now to put your faith in Jesus. Fill out a connect card right now and let us know that you trusted in Jesus for your salvation. I want to plead with you that you cannot fight this battle, but Jesus has fought it for you, not to destroy you, but to transform you into the person that God has always created you to be. And church, if you're sitting here as a believer, yes, God has provided salvation for you in Christ Jesus. And now he's called us up to fight.
fight, but not alone. He's given us his presence, his Holy Spirit, and he's given us, do you remember in that Hebrews passage? He's given us brothers and sisters to encourage one another as long as it's called today. You know what today is called? Today. You know what tomorrow will be called when we get there? Today. We're there to encourage one another so that our hearts do not become hard. So how do we do this? We fight grumbling with gratefulness. Gratefulness for the past. We look to the past to what Jesus has done for us in the cross in resurrection and ascension. We see that we can be satisfied in Christ and that God is satisfied with us in Christ Jesus. We fight grumbling with gratefulness in the present because we're not left alone. We don't have to say, God, where are you? He's here. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. And if your faith is in Christ, his spirit is in you. He's with you always. And one of the fruits of the Spirit is faith. Growing you and teaching you to trust that he's with you. That he's always been with you. But it's not just gratefulness for the past and gratefulness for the present. But it's gratefulness for the promises that are coming in Christ Jesus. That one day... When he returns, we'll have not a thing to complain about. We think we are satisfied now in Christ. Oh, we will have cups that are overflowing in the new heavens and new earth. There won't be a cause for complaint, but a cause for celebration. My friends, your grumbling cannot exhaust God's grace. Your complaint cannot exhaust his commitment to you in Christ Jesus. Let's find our satisfaction in Christ. And let's keep fleeing to the cross for our safety in every time of need so that we can remember that even though our grumbling might be great, Jesus' grace is always greater. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, We praise you and we're so grateful.